0: Grab a seat, everybody. Good morning. My name is Ryan. It is uh, nice to have you here on a Sunday morning. We're going to take our offering um, actually right now. So if you're new to this place, you can let that um, scoot by you. Um, but we're just so thankful for all the uh, sacrifice that many of you make on a weekly, monthly basis to, to make this happen. First Corinthians chapter 8. So if you're just joining us, um, if you've been gone for a little bit, we are in the midst of a letter written by a guy named Paul to a group of Christian believers, followers of Jesus in a town that was chocked full of temples and idol worship and sacrifices and And imagine, I just want you to imagine for a second that you live in Corinth, okay? I want you to imagine this. Everything you do is attached to a temple, is attached to a God. You want to have a child. You're expecting. You're going to head over um, and you're going to make a sacrifice, and, and if you're going on a trip, you're going to head over probably, if you're going on a trip to, say, oversea by boat, you're going to go to Poseidon's temple, and you're going to make a sacrifice. And if your crops are, are planted, and, and there's, or, or maybe someone's sick in your household, you're going to go to the temple of Asclepius, and you're going to make a Sacrifice. And everything you do and everything your family does and all your friends do all revolves economically, spiritually, socially around the worship and sacrifice to the gods. Everything. Everything. It is the air you breathe. It is just the, the world you live on, it live in. It is it is the reality of everything around you. Now, say you become a follower of Jesus, and you become a follower of Jesus, you hear this announcement about who Jesus is, and you become a follower of Jesus, and you still lived and interacted in a world chocked full of idol worship. What do you do? It was an unavoidable topic, and that's why the Corinthians sent word to Paul, who was in Ephesus, on some helpful give us some tips how do we do this can we eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols can we not eat meat you know what how do we live in this world how do we live in this this reality and you remember Jewish people were actually off the hook for idol worship I mean it was a long standing it was just like a Unwritten rule in the Roman world: if you were Jewish, you got a pass. You got the protection to worship as a Jew, uh, monotheistically. Okay, um, and you didn't have to. I mean, it was it was known that you weren't going to go to the temple. It was known that you weren't going to eat the food sacrificed to idols. Right. So you got kind of a pass. But for everybody else. If you were a Gentile pagan convert to Jesus, and then you all of a sudden just stopped going to the temple. Or if you all of a sudden just withheld yourself and pulled back from from families and friends, inviting you in. Remember last week we talked about how a third of the offering meat would actually go to the gods, a third of the offering meat you would bring people in and have a party, you know, like a little little cookout you know with the goat or the whatever and then, and then a third of it would actually be sold in the marketplace. But you were like, Ah, do I go do I go do I go to the feast at Poseidon's temple? do I, do I do this anymore? And when you didn't do it, your social life pretty much took a hit. You weren't, like, people are like, where where are they at? Why aren't they here? And if you were a Gentile and you began to follow Jesus, there was no free pass for you. In fact, people started to ostracize you. They would berate you. They would would make fun of you. And potentially local civic officials would actually start to knock on your door. Because by not participating in the worship of the idols, of the Roman gods, you were actually saying that these gods weren't real and and you were actually becoming uh, against the state. Meaning, if the gods were supposed to protect the city of Corinth and the Roman world and you refused to worship them, Maybe you were actually a little anti-Rome. And if you began to be vocal about it, they'd start to hunt you down. Think about it. Think about it. Maybe a month or a week earlier, you could have been worshiping with your family and friends at the Temple of Asclepius. And now all of a sudden you pull away. See, you knew what went on there. You've known all your life. You show up at a temple, okay, and there's dark sense, there's this dark sense of mystery and maybe fear. And there's this sense that you're feasting at a table of the gods, and you you were really eating and drinking in the God himself or herself to be part of your own life. And to be honest with you, there might have been some very powerful, emotional, spiritual connection there. And then, there were young girls and boys in the back hallways waiting to do whatever you wanted in return for money for the gods temple prostitutes. And now once you kind of shared in this dark and powerful world, perhaps it would take many years for you to readjust your life. Meaning there was your imagination, your memory, uh, your experiences were all very real and all very rich. And for you... Even the smell of idle food kind of brought you back, right? You ever had the experience where you're drive through a certain part of town and a memory comes back? Or maybe a certain song comes up or you see a, a movie and it brings you back to a certain experience with certain people, right? That's what they're dealing with. It's like a very real reality. Everything in their life, it was a part of their whole life. It was the habit of their life, the rituals and everything. And looking back you probably wouldn't be able to split okay the world up into different bits for instance the very smell of the meat like i said before you used to eat at the temple probably bring, brings you back the the sight of the priest chanting and and hearing that the sound and the smells and the drink and and just seeing the the you know the, the ceremony and all that stuff it could take years of teaching and changing your mind To be able to separate. Now, some were okay. Some people may have been fine with being able to separate. Well, this is just meat, it's not a big deal. But some would have been really hard. But then you come into the knowledge of Jesus, the Creator God, come to earth. And through his death and resurrection, his sacrifice, not our sacrifice, his sacrifice, you you see, you understand what there's this new kingdom and you're overcome by this announcement, right? This change of allegiance from the gods to the one creator God above all gods. And from that point on, you're baptized and you're welcomed into this new family, this new community that that worships in an odd way. They gather almost in secret. Um, There is no priests and there's no meat and no prostitutes and no temple and nothing like that. There's no symbols at all. And you were taught to practice exclusivity to Jesus just to one God and these new converts these new Gentile Christians probably we seemed so bizarre to everybody else so bizarre I mean they their fellow pagan friends they're probably in their family your family and there's this ab- abrupt seemingly arbitrary shift in your in your religious behavior. You're like, "What? What happened to? What happened to Hank?" Right? Like all of a sudden he doesn't want to hang out with us. He's weird. And a total withdrawal from the worship of these pagan deities was kind of like a move without precedent. So the gods were very real and big and important in Corinth. Now, the earliest references we have to baptism when someone begins to follow Jesus for the first time, and in this culture, you were baptized into the community, meaning they were that was the, the almost like a, a, a religious rite of passage not only into the community but into the death and Burial and resurrection of Jesus. And, and what they would say, they would say things like, um, you're baptized into the name of Jesus, meaning you have new ownership. As a follower of Jesus, there, you have a new master, you have a new allegiance, right? It's just a very powerful moment for these new converts. And so we pick up this letter because Paul is answering a very real question that they're asking. How do we live? Like literally, how do we live? How do we function in this society? How do we live in this era of idol worship? So we're gonna step back a little bit to last week's uh, passage and then keep moving forward. I'm gonna start in verse four. It says, so then about eating food sacrificed to idols... We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Verse 7. Paul says this, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Paul's saying not everybody knows this. Not everybody knows that there's just one creator God and that he's above all the other gods. And he's basically saying like, whose job is that to make that known? Your job, my job. It's, It's this idea that, we have this opportunity to make people hungry and thirsty for God. So as they are as people are pulling away from idol worship, people are like, "What? What are you doing?" Well, I'm following the one true creator God. This idea that we are to make loud and make vocal the good news of God in your family, in your neighborhood in your place of work. Dan's headed to Nicaragua. He's there now, like Nicaragua, anywhere. In a world where there are many gods and many idols, and Paul continues, some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. Actually, that better translated as though they are sacrificing to an idol. So Paul's saying that some people are so accustomed to eating it that, that actually when they eat it, they actually think about the fact that they're sacrificing to the idol, to the God. And since, Paul says, their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God, but we are no worse if we do not eat or if we, or no better if we do. So Paul's saying the food is not the problem. That's not the issue. Idols are the problem. And idols are, are a front for their, their inanimate, no power to them objects for what's behind them. And what Paul is saying is some people can't separate the food. And the practice. And so he says in verse 9, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights, and he uses this a lot in the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about this, does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple Won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Remember earlier, last week we talked about this idea that Paul says that your knowledge, you think you know, but you don't really know all that you're supposed to know. He's like, your knowledge is kind of puffed up. It's kind of arrogant. It's kind of prideful. And he says, so so you just laissez faire eating in the temple, you know, kicking it with your friends, is actually gonna cause a very young convert to Jesus to really just stumble. She's like, wait a second. I thought, but and they're gonna they're gonna have this wave of, 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 of uncertainty and confusion in their life. So there's this group of people, obviously within the church, and this goes all the way back to the beginning of the letter where Paul says there's different teachers and there's division and all that kind of stuff. Some of the teachers were probably saying, hey, it's totally fine. Idols aren't real. Knock yourself out. Have some meat. Go hang out with your friends. Do everything you used to do, just know that the idols aren't real. They actually had teachers teaching that. But what it was doing, it was dragging vulnerable people back into idol worship. And that's why Paul is writing this letter. He's like, you may have the right to eat meat. In fact, as a Roman citizen, okay, there were, what he may be referring to is, is this right that Roman citizens have in Corinth uh, to attend like big imperial festivals. And um, like a 4th of July parade, you know, kind of a deal. Like a big imperial deal. Um, and, and they had this right to be a part of it because they were Roman citizens. Um, but Paul says this, when you sin against your brother or sister in this way, you actually wound their conscience. You actually shift inside of them what they think is right and wrong. And he says this, it's really powerful. He says, you actually sin against Messiah. That is such a powerful statement. When you sin against the person to your right or your left who loves and follows Jesus, you're actually sinning against Jesus. Verse 13, it says, therefore... If what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. That is love. That is a guy who loves his brother and sister so much that he's willing to push aside something in his life so that it won't bring them down. He says, I will be a vegetarian for life. Now, I don't know about you. I'm going to leave it there. (laughs) Rather than tempt my brothers and sisters, I will choose to be a vegetarian for life. I will choose to totally avoid meat. Completely. Because they matter more than my rights, okay? It's this idea of knowledge and rights, okay? And Paul says love is bigger than that. So remember, this letter, we're chunking it up in a number of different weeks, um, a lot of different weeks, (laughs) okay? Um, Now here's the thing. They read it in one swoop, And maybe the next week they gather, they read it again, and then they read it again in one huge swath. So in order to get a little bit more about what Paul is saying, we're going to jump ahead for a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. This is where Paul kind of helps land the plane. And we'll get into this again later on. He says this, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. He's like, run away from it. I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body for we share the one loaf. Paul's point is that when you participate with your brothers and sisters, like we are going to do today, at the Lord's table right here, when you come to the table, you are actually connecting with Messiah together, okay? Meaning, it's not just about remembrance. I just want to make that really, really clear. Yes, we do remember. But it's more than remembering. By the Spirit, we participate in a very beautiful, mysterious act that we are connecting with Messiah here at the table together the body and the blood. And we'll get more into that when we get to the, the section in, in, in 1 Corinthians 11. But Paul says this in verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Do not uh, not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Meaning when you're at the temple making sacrifices, this is what Paul's trying to get at, and eating the meat, you're connecting with the gods. He says, do I mean then that the food sacrificed to an idol is anything or or that an idol is anything? No, no. But no, but, right? No, that's nothing. The, the food's nothing. the idols in themselves are nothing. He says, but the sacrifices of pagans offered are offered to demons, not to God. and I do not want you to participate uh, to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Very powerful, very stern warning from Paul. He's like, you can't do it both. You you need to stay away from the temples. You think they are not real, and in a sense that's true, but they are a sub, subter- the temple and the sacrifices, it's, it's like a subterfuge, a subterfuge for what is lurking in the back. There's something lurking in the back. We talked about this last week. There are other gods, there are other spiritual beings at war with the Creator God. And what Paul is saying is, you actually have this opportunity at the temples to connect with those beings. So, what does Paul say? He says, run away from idolatry. Meaning, at a very literal level, put down the goat. <laughs> I know you guys are like, dang it. Um, put it, <laughs> don't do it, right? Don't literally do an offering to a god. Um, And in a real sense, I want to be honest with you, in a very real sense, there are very spiritual places and actions here in Denver that you can be a part of to connect with very spiritual beings. And that's a reality. And I'm not going to go too far into that, but I'm just saying that don't, don't think that just something's not real. Uh, And just kind of wander into whatever. There are actual real um, spiritual connection points in this uh, very pluralistic city we live in, Denver. But on a metaphorical level, here's the thing. Anything that captures your heart, anything that captures my heart and turns my heart towards another god is an idol anything you take into your heart that takes your heart away from God. Even really benign things like money, possessions, stuff, grades, titles, celebrities, athletes, what people think of you, your band, your your, your club, your girlfriend, your church, anything can pull your heart away from the worship of the one true creator, God. Anything. It, it sinks in underneath the surface. I mean, those are the things that are actually the scariest because they are benign. They're like, they're just subtle. Right? Paul says in verse 22, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And it's Paul's making the same point that Moses made and Elijah made. In the worship of Baal, in the worship of Amon-Ra, Moses, Paul, and Elijah said, you have to pick one. You have to pick a side. You have to make this intentional choice. Am I going to worship the one creator God or Amon Ra? Am I going to worship the one creator Yahweh or Baal? Am I going to worship Jesus or money? Am I going to worship? I have to pick one. I literally have to make a decided choice. And you know what? I have to make that choice every day, every hour, in every moment. See, God is a jealous God. And we think of that as like some jealous boyfriend who's ridiculous checking our text messages Girlfriends or whatever. I've never had a jealous boyfriend. But what I'm telling you, (laughs) what I'm telling you is that that's not what, that's the picture you get, right? Jealousy. It's like some crazy, weird stalker person. No. This is a God who is all about you. And, and, and as a lover, you actually have jealous, like, you should be jealous for things. You should be jealous as a parent who's talking to your kids. You should be jealous. I mean, there's, there's things you should be rightly jealous about. It's this jealousy from God is not some insecurity, not some cosmic, weird insecurity, He's actually a jealous God because he loves you to the point that he broke through time and space to chase you down in order to bring you back to himself. That is the jealous God of the Bible. The cross. His jealousy came to the cross for anything that takes away your heart. For anything that that pulls you away from who you were created to be, that is the jealousy of God. And so I got to ask myself, and you have to ask yourself, how do I worship? Like, like really, how do how do I do this worship thing? Is it singing once a week? Once every couple weeks, whatever. Now, here's the thing. We don't do sacrifices anymore, which is kind of cool. I mean, I would encourage you not to. Um, there's some laws now. But, but like, so when we think of worship, we think of popping in a CD or whatever. Um, here's what worship, worship is when we come together and we're singing, Okay? What singing does, what these what these words on the screen, what the music, what this does is it creates space for us. It's it's lyrics and poetry and theology and rhythm, it creates a space for us. Now we can worship in a lot of different ways, but 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 a lot of us just think of worship as singing. But it creates space for us, and it creates space for us to to think and reflect and and to refocus our allegiance. There's one more text I think is really important. This is also Paul, and he wrote another letter a few years later to a group of Christians in Rome, the epicenter, (laughs) Right? the epicenter of worship, imperial worship, and all this stuff. And he writes this letter to the Romans, uh, the Roman Christians. And um, we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 12. No, we're going to go back further. We're going to go back 11, because it sets everything up. There's this great hymn that Paul reminds the people of. He says, oh, the depth of the riches. And this is like a song, okay? This is like a worship song that we would sing on Sunday morning, all right? Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How search- unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him, and through him, and for him, are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, somewhere in history, we added verses and chapters. But there's a word that follows this. Therefore, because of all of that, Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of the ruthless, relentless love of God for broken people like you and me, he says, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is how we do worship. Paul says. This is how a whole community of people chased down, bought, and paid for by the cross, worship. That word, offer your bodies, that word, soma, is actually this beautiful word that actually means the entirety of you. The entirety of your mind, your soul, everything that makes you you, worship, God with you. Worship is about sacrifice. Worship is not just, it's not a religious practice. It's a human practice. Everybody worships. You worship something, somebody's. You, you worship all the time. The question is, as Followers of Jesus who have given our allegiance to a new king, a different kingdom. Do you worship God? Do you worship money? Do you worship our country? Do you worship our flag and our anthem? Do you worship financial security? Do you worship stuff? Do you worship minimizing your risks do you worship um, escape food drink binging Netflix do you worship (laughs) he's like yeah Um, do you worship a particular political ideology do you worship uh, your body do you worship other people's bodies? Do you worship uh, your notoriety, maybe through social media or whatever? Do you worship sec- your sexuality? Do you worship your experiences, and do you worship travel? Do you worship? Do you worship all these other things? You and I are made to give ourselves over to someone or something larger than ourselves. It's how we're wired. Meaning, you do not get to pick if you worship, but you do get to pick who you worship. What you worship. Now, what God is, what Paul is saying is, giving your entire life over to God. Sacrifice, your body, giving your body is a living sacrifice. Paul, it's this idea of, I want all of who I am to be yours. That's what that means. You are living sacrifices. How you live is how you worship how you live, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you spend your work time. How, all of this is worship. It's all worship. People ask all the time, like, uh, you know, the, the, here's how you tell how you worship. And for us, it's very economic, okay? It's very simple. You can, you can track what you spend your money on. There's a lot of money I spend on coffee. Right? And um, I heard amens. Um, and, and there's just, I mean, think about it. leisure and and maybe maybe things for your house. And what do we worship? I'm not saying all that stuff's bad. It's like food sacrificed to idols, right? Is the food bad? No. But where's my heart going? That makes sense? And how we can help each other not get off track. Thinking deeply and seriously about our lives and our actions as worship. And how our lives and our actions actually impact each other. So, I'm gonna lead us into communion. Because this is very much all through what Paul is saying. That when we come to the table as a community, okay, we're actually doing more than remembering. We're actually, in a sense, as a community, participating in the death and resurrection of Jesus and the implications of that in our own lives. Meaning, this is a, is this like a a re-up, a, re, uh, a chance to, to make new allegiances, to to look at our lives and to reflect on our lives and actually come to the table fresh and new and bringing God back into our